Himalayas Studios. We made it to the end of 2020, one of the worst years in recent history, and a year that's felt pretty apocalyptic. So, to close out 2020, we figured, why don't we sit with that feeling a little more? It can be very depressing, both in terms of like what might happen with unchecked climate change, but also in terms of all this power structure stuff. Like, the more I learn about just how well-funded and organized all of the, the efforts have been to stop climate action, it both makes me feel like it's possible to do something about it, but also like gives me a keen awareness of just how hard that will be. Mm. <laughs> you <know>? So, <laughs> yeah. I'm a downer at parties sometimes. <laughs> From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week podcasts for the end of the world. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Amy Westervelt has a history of forging her own path. I went through this period in like uh, junior high where I saw the movie Working Girl and I thought that like Melanie Griffith was so cool in that movie and I (laughs) wore power suits to junior high. (laughs) Little, I don't even know where my mom found them or why she thought it was a good idea to encourage this, but like full on like shoulder pad suits (laughs) (laughs) suits <laughs> <laughs> wait what was the uh, what was the intent there like what, I just I thought they were I thought that it was like I just thought that like it looked cool and it was like sophisticated and like mm. people like mercilessly made fun of me and I just was like they don't know I'm so far ahead of the curve <laughs> <laughs> she's brought that give no fucks attitude to her work as an award-winning writer journalist and podcaster Amy's been reporting on the climate crisis for several years now, and she's the creator of Drilled, an investigative podcast about the fossil fuel industry, now in its fifth season. This is a video of Justino on YouTube. He's standing on a bridge over a huge rushing river, and he's saying, this river, the Aguarico River, 
Long ago, when they were exploring for petroleum, the oil companies dumped thousands of barrels of oil into it. Virtieron aguas tóxicas por este río. Por este río que a nosotros, por miles de años, nos proveía de alimentos. They dumped toxic water into this river. He means wastewater from oil and gas drilling. Into this river that for thousands of years nourished us. She's also one of the founders of Critical Frequency, a women-run podcast network that produces shows about climate change and justice. That kind of information can be pretty difficult to absorb. So, how do you share this doom and gloom in a way that doesn't feel completely hopeless? The big thing for me, and this is the reason that I have in the last I would say like 10 to 15 years in particular, really focused on on the accountability piece around climate is that for mm. me, there's something soothing about understanding that we're really talking about a fairly small group of people here. There's specific people who made specific decisions mm. that kind of put us all on this pathway. And it's not this like I, I find the the narrative of like general human failing to be really unproductive. <laughs> you know, well, I guess we're just too short-sighted to do anything about this. Like that doesn't make me feel like doing anything. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, actually, we have these systems in place that have given an unfair amount of power to a small group of people and we need to do everything we can to change that. Hmm. That at least it's a huge task. It's a massive undertaking, but it's at least something that could work. It's very specific. And yeah. it doesn't require wide-scale behavior change or us making a couple of giant leaps in our evolution. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so yeah. Say more about that. like, Because my impression is that it does take <laughs> evolutionary change or, or wide-scale change. Could you unpack that a little bit more for me? I mean, yes, it does take systemic change. But I think that it's more specific and not like we need mm. to learn how to think long term. We need to shift the focus of our society. There are like massive energy structures that need to change. Mm. You know, we need to think through power and accountability and all of those things. But like there are actual examples in the past of societies doing that successfully. Mm. Whereas there are no examples of humans suddenly en masse being able to think long term. <laughs> you know, when I mean, I think actually there's a lot of good examples in the civil rights movement that mm. you can look at as like, OK, here's a movement that began with absolutely no idea that it would ever succeed. But yeah. and, and in fact, encountered loss after loss after loss and kept going and still continues today to push and make incremental improvement and all that kind of stuff. The issue, of course, on climate is that the window of time is dwindling. Yeah. We have seen revolutions happen in human history. It is a mm. thing that has happened multiple times. Like, I do think that there's a possibility that that is something that could happen and that might need to happen to actually do something about this. Hmm. So from your vantage point as a journalist and as a person who tells these stories, who who makes these essentially media experiences for people to consume, who are you trying to reach? What, what is the sort of specific outcome in your mind? Like, I'm telling the story of this season and drilled. 
these are the people that I'm hoping to hit and change their minds and, and sort of mobilize them somehow. How do you think about things like that? Or do you think about things like that? I do think about that. And I think that was actually a big part of the thinking around the show in The general. true crime framing. The true crime framing, yeah, was like, if we can get this information out to people in a, a very digestible narrative way, then I think we could get a lot more people choosing to listen than would necessarily sign up for like a very serious climate show, (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty much like all that existed when I started Trill. It was like two serious people discussing climate, you know, and I'm just like, (laughs) like there takes a specific type of person to, to tune into that. And I don't think that like they're the ones that necessarily need much convincing. So I do think there's people that, you know, were maybe kind of climate curious and this was an easy way to like learn about some stuff. And then I've heard from a lot of people that it's given that them um, something to send to sort of um, more skeptical Hmm. relatives because – and this was another thing too that I learned in reporting the podcast that in the second season we followed this group of crab fishermen who wound up suing all the oil companies and like more than half of them were pretty hardcore conservatives who Hmm. actually don't quote unquote believe in climate change. We're kind of both of the opinion that climate change has happened since – the beginning of time. I mean, if you look at, you know, okay, A, the dinosaurs. But then during Henry, I think it was Henry VIII's time, they went through a um, mini uh, ice age. Seeing what the oil industry knew and when, and what they did with that information, has shifted her view a bit. Yeah, I would say there's some definite exacerbation. But ultimately, it kind of doesn't matter. For Lori, it's less about climate change and more about fairness. The idea that everyone should be dealing with the same information that people and markets shouldn't be manipulated, that most people and companies are at least trying to do the right thing. And I would like to think that most people operate on an honest playing field, but they don't, and I don't know why I still keep getting surprised by that. I just do. And now they're at a point where climate change is impacting their industry, Hmm. and they're just like, that's unfair. That's a rigged system. It's not fair. And so I think that, like, very basic narrative that's, like, kind of the first thing that toddlers understand, fairness, Hmm. (laughs) is it's a lot more effective at sort of getting through to a wider array of people than – beating people over the head with the science and making people feel stupid when they don't understand it. Mm. And, you know, and also even requiring that people understand the science enough to have an opinion about it one way or another, which I think has been just a like way too high of a bar that the climate movement has had for a long time. Like this is the science that science checks out kind of deal. Yeah. It's like, you know, most people don't even have a like a basic understanding of biology, never mind climate science, which is many times more complicated, you know? So, yeah. I'm curious, like, from your experience as a journalist covering climate stories, you know, advancing arguments and working against an environment of disinformation, of short-term thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how do you change somebody's mind from your perspective? I have had the best luck personally in doing that um, by, and this is, I, I think, part of what drives my obsession <laughs> with uh, with primary documents. I think like l- seeing a document from a company, like an internal document that 
shows exactly what their strategy was is very compelling. I have only once had someone accuse me of like photoshopping. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, um, that really showing people the, the data on things is very helpful. And also what I tend to do with people who, I mean, I don't always engage with the people that are like climate denier trolling, Hmm. but I have had pretty good luck, actually, even with those folks of, you know, maybe the original person, you know, is never going to change their mind. But like three or four other people will be like, oh, thanks for providing that information. That was interesting. (laughs) You know, I'll kind of provide things and then I'll ask for them. Where does your opinion come from? What data Hmm. is that based on? Show me your research. And that often kind of ends the argument because the reality is there's not a lot of good research that disproves that climate change is happening, you know? So, so yeah, I do think that that tends to be helpful, like to try as much as possible to get people to do their own research so that it's not me telling them. They're kind of like, oh, I didn't realize there was this whole other layer to it. And then I do think that um, because climate for so long was talked about as a science problem, I think engaging people in sort of the broader inequality and powerful people weaponizing and abusing their power kind of narrative is tends to be more it's just more relatable (laughs) (laughs) yeah how do you find your footing uh in the face of most people like being incentivized to look the other way or or to see things not in the way that you see things where does that self-confidence come from I think the thing that gives me confidence in the work that I'm doing now is that I feel like it's not about me, you know? It's not my opinion. I think I've, like, come to a place where I'm like, this is what's needed to protect everyone. And I feel like I've kind of always been, I don't know, I've always sort of had maybe an overdeveloped sense of, of like righteous indignation <laughs> and and like a a feeling of of obligation to kind of fight for the underdog or like fix things that are unfair. So anyway, that to me is kind of what the climate story is about right now. It's a it's more of a power problem than like an energy source problem. So that gives me a certain amount of of a thick skin, I think, cuz I just feel like I'm fighting for other people. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really admire your work, and I wish you the best of luck for everything else that you're going to do. Thanks, Nick. I wish you a lifetime of giving no fucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will internalize that. I will work really hard to internalize that. <laughs> So, how do you function when your world is ending, but the rest of the world goes on? More in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. The thing about the end of the world is that it doesn't have to be some sort of cataclysmic worldwide event. The really difficult thing for me when he died was that my world had ended and yet it had, I mean, it clearly had not. I had children to get school. I had a job which I threw myself into. I had all sorts of things to do. So all the evidence suggests that the world has not ended. This is Sophie Townsend, an editor and producer at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the creator of the podcast Goodbye to All This. The show is a 12-part series about the death of her husband, Russell. We have breakfast and get the girls ready for school. Russell kisses us goodbye. His doctor has ordered a full body scan just to be sure. And he's going. But just to be certain. And I have coffee with the school mums. Then my mobile rings and I go outside to take the call. And I tell them what he tells me. A shadow on his lung, the tiredness, the protein marker in his blood, and now a shadow on his lung. After his death in 2012, Sophie started writing about her loss and widowhood. It wasn't until 2018 that audio production company Falling Tree approached her with the idea to turn her story into an audio memoir and submit it as a pitch to the BBC World Service. After, you know, some months going back and forward, they um, decided that they'd like a 12-part series, which seemed to me sort of extraordinary after doing little bits and pieces Hmm. and little moments from the last eight years since he died to sort of be given the freedom to actually tell the whole story from Hmm. beginning to, and I mean, it it hasn't ended because clearly grief doesn't work like that. There's not an end date. But, you know, to take that story of him being diagnosed and getting sicker and then dying and then sort of looking at what happened next Hmm. was a real privilege To what extent does working on these pieces about Russell's death help you work through that grief? I think if you want to get over grief, probably going to a therapist is a better idea than 
like making a 12-part podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking about it because a friend said to me, you know, this must help you get through it. And I don't think it does. I think mm. that's a very separate process. Mm. But I think there's something in me that is compelled to tell stories and this is a story and I have enjoyed is probably not the right word. I think I've been sort of slightly compulsive about shaping it into a narrative and mm. I think at times that feels like it helps and possibly does but I also think there's this when you shape something into a narrative and this is quite raw and I haven't shaved off the difficult bits but life is actually different to a narrative and I think there's a lot of stuff that is sort mm. of pre-language and pre that sort of narrative drive of you know first second and third acts that yeah. sometimes I feel like oh my god I haven't dealt with the icky bits that lie beneath not even what I don't want the world to know or that I'm trying to keep private that are just very sort of those cellular feelings um, yeah. that don't make it in there. So, so what you're saying is like, you know, the act of building a narrative and storytelling is like to impose or create a sense of order and a lot about this experience is extremely chaotic and it defies order. Yes, is, is I think that's exactly it. And I think yeah. there is something about, particularly the episode about the night of his death, hmm. which is very much focused on the lack of, like, I, I have no clear memories of that night. So I've written it as sort of like, did this happen then or when did this yeah. happen? And I explore that. I go to coffee, get back from coffee, make phone calls, answer the door to a friend who wants to visit Russell. I tell them he's sleeping. They leave, not wanting to disturb him. I pick up some groceries, I have lunch. I tidy upstairs, sweeping, not vacuuming, because I don't want to wake him up. I make myself a cup of tea and sit by him as I drink it. He's sleeping deeply still, and I think to myself, as I did this morning, good, he needs his rest. And that was actually the time where I felt narrative is most useful. Like, that was the first time I'd actually ever written about his actual death hmm. it was therapeutic it did free me up from a whole lot of vague feelings that were just sort of sitting there collapsed into each other and hmm. it's not like I worked out exactly what happened but I sort of by writing through that I got a kind of a shape from all those. So I think there are moments in the story where actually writing stuff down has been 
really important. So I've been listening to each episode as it comes out weekly. Um, and hearing them released this way, I get the sense you're still working through stuff. And, and so I'm curious, like, how does it feel whenever a new episode gets released? Um, pretty, pretty awful, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am really proud of this work and I'm really deeply privileged that, I mean, what a gift to be given to be able to tell this story. But I have found each time it goes, like, I, I wasn't quite prepared for the sort of drip feed of it. Like the weekly cadence? Yes, that yeah. that it would just, like, I feel like I'm reliving, not quite reliving, that's not quite the right word, but sort of I kind of go back into that space and it has been hard to, because obviously... I am a person that needs to work and see people and raise children and mm. I do feel like there's a there's a part of me that every week has collapsed a little bit and yet mm. I'm in a space in my life where I have to keep going. I had this idea, Nick, that it, it was just, this is work, this will be fine, this is what I do. I'm a professional, I'll just get through it. But it has been much, much harder than that. And I, I think now, well, of course it's, what were you thinking? <laughs> of course it's hard. Um, it has been surprisingly difficult for me. It's been nearly um, a decade since Russell's death. And so when you look back now... What do you think is at the heart of the story? I think it's a story about finding who I am. And I think back on my marriage to Russell, who was older and wiser than I was when we got together, more advanced in his career, knew himself in a way I didn't know myself. And I think, I mean, there were a hundred reasons we got together, but part of what attracted me to him was because I felt so sort of all over the place and kind of what should I do, what sh you know, who am I? And it was very comforting to me to be with someone who totally had it together. I mean, mm. he obviously didn't have it totally together, but he was he was much more together and grown up, whatever that means, than me. And I think since his illness and death, my struggle, as much as it's been about the grief of losing him and missing him, and I miss him terribly, there's been a sort of like finally I got to look at who I was in the world and what hmm. I would do and coming up against that. And I've always been a person who has resisted kind of 
growing up and, you know, understanding money and understanding, you know, how to pay bills and, like, it's all been very sort of, you know, like muddle-headed, you know, mm. screwball comedy heroine, <laughs> which annoyed the hell out of Russell. And I just came up against actually... I don't know if you call it growing up or finding oneself or I think that's what the story is about. Hmm. How do you live with yourself and how do hmm. you proceed in the world and who am I and what do I want? Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, I feel like I, I have such a, a deeper understanding of like the show now. Good. Uh, thank Good. you very much for talking to me. Well, thank you so much. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. The show was produced by Andrea Zwahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Parati of Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant Pod is a production of Alias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.